How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, I spoke yesterday about the, uh, the psychological nature of the way in which we typically think of ourselves and our identity. Today, I want to, to add a, another strand to that. I want to talk about the context in which uh, we think of ourselves as, as human beings and having an identity. And I want to start just by saying that I think it's basic that human beings, uh, we do need an identity. We need to belong uh, we need to be, to use a term in a, in a slightly uh, technical way, we need to be recognized. Uh, you might say, well, what does Truman mean by we need to recognize when I'm walking down the street? Does somebody need to point out and say, oh, look, that's Truman? No, not that kind of recognition. I think we need to be recognized in a sense of, of having others acknowledge that we have value. You may have had this experience perhaps in, at school when you would go and, and sit at the table where all the cool kids were sitting and they would stand up and walk away and put their plates down on another table. And you feel at that point, uh, we might say you feel sort of alienated. You feel distressed. You feel uh, something, uh, something isn't right. And I would say that's kind of how I'm using the language of recognition here. I would say, you've not been recognized. You've not been recognized for who you want to be at that point. Maybe you're the last pick for the playground sports team. The same thing applies. We spend a lot of our time, a lot of our lives, wanting to be recognized. Wanting to, uh, to talk the talk, to walk the walk, that means we belong to particular communities. One of the problems, I think, today with that is this, that we live in a world where traditional communities have collapsed for various reasons, not least, I think, the psychologizing of identity. And in a world where traditional communities have collapsed, we tend to gravitate towards non-traditional communities that have a powerful sense of community and identity and will give us the sense that we have been recognized treated as people of value. Uh, I don't, certainly not meaning to put these different groups on the same uh, level playing field, but one could say we live in an era where it, it's, it's strange, is it not, that a lot of young men in the West have been attracted to ISIS. Uh, and we might think, well, why, why, why do they do that? And there's a tendency perhaps to jump to, to critique, first of all, and say, well, that's a bad thing. Well, certainly it is, but I think it also reflects the fact that we live in a world where, where young people want to be recognized. They want to belong to something. They want to belong to something important, and ISIS offers them a powerful, powerful ideological expression of community in which they can belong. And one of the problems, I think, in the West today is we don't do that anymore. And therefore, there's a sense in which when we come up against these kind of groups, we're trying to fight something with nothing. And that makes us very, very vulnerable. And I think the same thing applies to, 
the communities of sexual minorities. Why are they proving so popular and powerfully attractive? Because they are communities a lot of the time. They are communities. We may disagree with them, but they are communities. One of the striking things that comes uh, out of reading uh, Rosaria Butterfield's work is uh, that when she left the LGBTQ community and became a Christian and joined the church, she expected to be leaving one community for another. And she sort of found that she left one community for no community at all. And that's a real problem. That's a real problem. So that's in the background of what I want to say. You'll notice in much of what I say, I'm not drawing uh, value judgments so much as simply trying to explain uh, how we got here and why the world is the way it is. Bit of a preamble then to, to things that I want to say. If we're talking about identity, I think one of the things to realize first and foremost is that identity is not an intrinsic thing. Uh, what do I mean by that? We could say this. Identity is, is that uh, whereby we exist in relation to other things and other people. Uh, teach our course uh, at Grove City College, and we do some of this in the course, and uh, at some point in the class, I'll ask one of the students, who are you? And typically, they don't answer by giving me an analysis of their genome, or they don't tell me their blood group, or they don't give me bare biological facts about themselves. Typically, they answer by saying, well, I grew up in this place. My parents were so-and-so. My ambition is to do this in later life. I'm studying that subject at college. It's very interesting that the, the way they present themselves to me is in terms of their identity relative to the world around them. We're all human beings, we're all made in the image of God, but their identity, our individual identity, is, if you like, the, the sum of the network of social and geographical relations that we have at any given point in time in our history. Uh, the Bible uh, testifies to this in some ways. Think of Adam. Uh, who is Adam in the uh, Old Testament? Well, he's made in the image of God. But more significant in many ways for knowing who Adam as an individual is, there are a number of other factors that locate him. Uh, he has a location. He's set in the garden. He has a place. Uh, he, he is set within a hierarchy. You know, he names the animals. God names him, but he names all the animals. And that's a way of the text indicating that, that Adam is, is above the animals but below God. Naming is typically, culturally, uh, a reflection of authority. Uh, by and large, we inherit our names from our parents. Well, they give us our names because they are prior to us and have authority over us. Same thing applies in Genesis. Adam is named by God, but he names all the animals. So he has a place geographically, he has a place in the hierarchy. He has a task. The task is to care for the garden. And he has a partner, Eve. There's that wonderful statement, of course, when Adam first sees Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There is recognition there of Eve, of sameness and difference. And I would also say this. I think Adam knows himself better through knowing Eve. He becomes more self-conscious as a human being when he encounters another human being. Again, the text hints at that, doesn't it? There's no other creature on the face of the earth suitable for Adam. 
There is no partner in conversation for him. He becomes more aware of himself when he encounters another human being. He becomes more self-conscious. Yeah, think about this. Uh, you know, we, can, we can relate to a lot of things. I can have a, a relationship to a book. I can read a book. And that makes me conscious of myself as somebody who can read a book. Uh, owned a Jack Russell Terrier for many years. I could play with my Jack Russell Terrier. And it, it, it allowed me to, to relate to someone and, and learn some things about myself relating to him. But nothing compares to the relationship between one human being and another human being. When we relate to other human beings, they're the ones whose recognition we crave. It's in encountering other human beings that we become, if you like, more human ourselves. I want to just read a short passage from Milton's Paradise Lost. It's one of the most beautiful passages in, in Milton's book. It's, Paradise Lost is not a book containing a lot of great theology, but I actually think the moment that Adam sees Eve, uh, Milton draws out something very beautiful about what goes on when we encounter another human being, perhaps when we encounter the love of our lives. This is what Adam said. The rib he formed and fashioned with his hands. Under his forming hands a creature grew, man-like but different sex, so lovely fair, that what seemed fair in all the world seemed now mean, or in her summed up, in her contained, and in her looks which from that time infused sweetness into my heart, unfelt before, and into all things from her air inspired, the spirit of love and amorous delight. And I'm always struck by that, uh, that last couplet there. And into all things from her air inspired, the spirit of love and amorous delight. Adam's relationship to Eve, Milton's saying, that changes everything. He becomes more conscious of himself as a human being, and his relationship to creation than ever before. And it's the same for us. I think if you want to know what does it mean to be a human being, it doesn't just mean to have a genome. It doesn't just mean to have a blood group. Our identity, our self-consciousness, is profoundly shaped by the external world. Objects, places, buildings, inanimate objects, animals, Above all, by other people. Other people. We think about how we relate to other people. Uh, family structures. Families shape an awful lot of, of who we are. I grew up in a non-Christian home. I always uh, joke somewhat wryly to my friends. The, the, the one advantage of growing up in a non-Christian home is this. Whatever else has screwed me up, it's not the religion of my parents. But families are very important. Friends are very important. Life partners are very important. Places are very important. The external world, one might say, typically provides a large part of our identity to the extent that if we try to imagine ourselves in a different time and a different place, we simply can't do it. I say to the students sometimes, you know, okay, let's imagine that you weren't born in America. Let's imagine you were born in Germany with different parents and you went to a different school. Uh, and maybe you were born in a different time. What would it like, be like to be you? And the answer, of course, is I just don't know because that wouldn't be me. Even if I had the same genetic code, it, it wouldn't actually be me. Everything about me would be, would be different. 
So the external world, as I say, typically provides a large part of our identity, and it's, in a sense, who we are. And historically, the pre-industrial world was fixed, or much more fixed than it is today. I grew up in the West Country of England, a fairly rural place. Uh, I suppose if you're looking for an American equivalent, one might say you know, Arkansas or uh, Alabama or somewhere like that in terms of its, its rural uh, pace of life. The rural world is very fixed in a lot of ways. Nothing much changes. Even today, rural communities tend to be more stable and fixed. Isn't it not intriguing that we live in an era where, by and large, most of us actually have less to worry about than our ancestors would have in history, and yet our world is so torn apart by anxiety and mental illness and depression and things like that? It's very interesting. I turned 52 uh, just uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, I'm guessing that most of my ancestors were probably dead by now. 52 would have been a pretty good age 300 years ago to have achieved. And yet I suspect they didn't live with quite the same level of anxiety that's typical in the modern age. Why? The world they lived in was, was very static. And the thing about static worlds is, when you don't have much to choose, when everything is pretty much given to you and stays the same, by that I mean the world in which you live is given to you and stays the same, you don't worry about it. If you're a peasant farmer in medieval Europe, or you're, you're the son of a peasant farmer, you're going to be a peasant farmer. You're not going to lie awake at night worrying about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. It's decided for you. It's decided for you. Probably you're going to meet the person uh, you're going to marry uh, within you know, the first seven, ten years of your life. Probably you're not going to travel more than 15 or 20 miles from the place where you were born. It's a very, very stable world. The level of anxiety, we might say, about who you are is comparatively low compared to today. And that brings me to the modern world. I want to say that the modern technological consumerist world is a place of dramatic flux. And alongside that trend I noted yesterday that we have an increasingly psychologized self-created form of identity, at the same time as that's been emerging, we have also have a world emerging where there are less fixed markers to actually know who we are. Less fixed markers. Uh, one could use uh, banks as an example. The town where I grew up in, I think it's still true to say that if you go into the little town, Stroud, where I grew up a few miles outside of a town called Stroud, you go to Stroud and uh, the major bank there, Lloyd's Bank, uh, it's, it's in a magnificent building uh, with huge pillars at the front. Magnificent building. Uh, and you go inside and it's a marble floor and marble pillars. That bank is communicating something through its building. It was designed to last. The message that comes from that bank is, we were here before you were born, and we're going to be here long after you've gone. But the typical bank today looks as if they bought it as a kit from Ikea. <laughs> uh, we drove past a Wells Fargo. Yes, in my bank here is Wells Fargo. Drove past Wells Fargo last night, and 
It looks as if it's made out of cardboard. Actually, just uh, if you've ever been to uh, uh, what was R.C. Sproul's church in Florida, I always think it's a little bit of a uh, metaphor for American Christianity. It looks more like a magnificent Gothic cathedral. If you bang it above shoulder height, you realize it's made of polystyrene. It's kind of metaphor for Christianity in the West today, I think. But banks today, they're, they're built, they're not built to send out that signal of solidity and permanence. They're temporary, temporary. And I think you can look at architecture and you could do a study of architecture and say the shifts in architecture in the last 150 years reflect that shift in society. I go to London now, I don't recognize the skyline. I bet for 100 years you could go to London, walk out uh, into uh, any street in London and look up at the sky and it would look the same. Every time I return to London now, something different. My wife and I were watching a, a crime drama set in London just the other week and I didn't immediately recognize the city when they did this sort of panning shot at the start because there are so many tall buildings there that weren't there 10 years ago. We live in a world of change, continual flux. And that raises the big question of how do we locate ourselves and how do we find an identity? And I want to here draw out a number of things that I think militate against the stability of the world and therefore against the stability of, ident uh, of identity. Uh, first of all, I think the impact, well, it depends on whether you, what you want to call it. Do you want to call it capitalism or consumerism? The impact of the way our economy is set up today is designed for impermanency. It is designed to continually transform social relations and institutions because you need to keep selling stuff to people. I was watching a program last week that confirmed my belief that yes, my mother did have a fridge that lasted the entirety of my childhood. Fridges now, they reckon if you get 10 years out of a fridge, you're doing really well. We can put a man on the moon. We can land a probe on Mars. We can't build a fridge that lasts for more than 10 years? No, because fridge manufacturers need to keep selling fridges. Think of fashion. This is, an e this is a soft target for the students. I, mean, I can't say it to guys of, of my generation, because if I say, how many people here are wearing clothes they bought 10 years ago? You know, 80% of us put our hands up. You ask a bunch of 18, 19-year-olds that. Well, it's a bit unfair, because they were a different size then. But ask uh, 18, 19-year-olds if they're wearing clothes they bought two years ago. No, because fashion changes. The flux of fashion is a typical function of the consumerist economy. Everything is changing. You don't have to buy into Karl Marx's theory of historical progress to see the power of his observations of what industrialization was doing to England in the middle of the 19th century. Here I quote from the Communist Manifesto. Constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation, distinguish this epoch from all earlier ones. It's hard to argue with that. All fixed, fast, frozen relations with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions are swept away. All new formed ones become antiquated before they can ossify. 
And then maybe one of the most famous lines he ever wrote, all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned, and man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. Uh, what Marx, I think, is accurately observing there as he looks at the cities of England in the middle of the 19th century is industrialization changes everything. My wife comes from a, a small island off the west coast of Scotland, far more rural even than the rural upbringing that I had. What's interesting is when we go to visit the island on the occasions we do is how large her family is. First cousins, second cousins, third cousins. I learned very early on, insult nobody on the island because somebody in your presence will be closely related to that person. Her family's huge. My family, not so much. Our family now in America, it's just us and our two boys. That's the only family we have within three and a half thousand miles. Industrialization changes family relations. And think of how much typically depends upon family relations. Who you think you are fits into that family network. If you come from a big family where second and third cousins are important relations, then you're a different person to the man, wife, and two boys who, who emigrate to a foreign country. All that is solid melts into air. Second factor that one could point to and we don't often think about this, and I think this is actually intimately connected to uh, questions of, of gender uh, and, the, and the transgender issue. The impact of technology. It's a fascinating statement by a, a, a Catholic friend of mine, philosopher, Michael Hanby. He has this, this almost like a mantra at times. He'll say, technology is ontology. What does he mean by that? Technology actually shapes how you relate to the world. Again, think about America, built on the automobile. How the automobile shapes who you are in a profound way. Church discipline, virtually impossible in an era of the automobile because the person that you're trying to discipline simply jumps in their car and drives to the next town and keeps driving and keeps driving until they find a church that will take them in. Think of all the things you can do Think of how small the world is because of the automobile. Technology is ontology. How you think about distance is profoundly shaped by the technology available to you. It struck me moving from Philadelphia to uh, uh, Slippery Rock, which is a, a dot on the map north of Pittsburgh. Suddenly, when I ask people about distances, they give me distances in distance in Slippery Rock. In Philadelphia, they gave it to me in time. How far is X from my home? Oh, it's 25 minutes on a good day. Well, it's only a mile and a half. Yeah, it's 25 minutes on a good day. Whereas in Slippery Rock, I say, oh, it's a mile and a half away. Again, that way of thinking about the world connects to the technology available to us and how it functions in the culture we're in. Think about how technology transforms the relationship between the young and the old. Typically, Respect for age has marked human society. That begins to change, really, I think, in the 17th century, and we now live with the full fruit of it today. Technology favors the young, 
Particularly information technology favors the young. It favors those with young, agile minds. I was the last person at my school, it was a fairly traditional school, the last person at my school to learn Latin, and the last person not to do computer science. I was absolutely on the break point. Uh, I think I got the better of the deal, actually. I'd, I'd rather be able to read Latin than, than write machine code, I have to say. But it does leave me at a permanent disadvantage in the modern world where I, I've got a teaching assistant. He has to do the spreadsheets for me. I can't do a spreadsheet. And I don't have the brain to get around how to set up my own spreadsheets. I, you know, I pay somebody to do that effectively. But think of how that shifts the relationship between young and old. Think of how it shapes our attitude to history, where history becomes not so much a source of wisdom, but a source of oppression or ignorance. And I think American society is peculiarly vulnerable to that because, and I don't mean this in a facetious way, you don't have any history. America invented itself. And America invented itself on the grounds of the future was going to be better than the past. The past was Britain. The past was the colonies. The future is the new frontier. And all of the hope and potential that that opens up. One might add, well, you say, well, Truman, you said uh, uh, technology actually plays its part in, in, uh, in the transgender issue. Well, I think technology... More than anything else, technology has eroded or attenuated the distinction between men and women. Again, Marx, Marx puts his finger on this in the Communist Manifesto, 1848. He says this, the less skill and exertion of strength implied in manual labor, in other words, the more modern industry becomes developed, the more is the labor of men superseded by that of women. Differences of age and sex have no longer any distinctive social validity. All are instruments of labor, more or less expensive to use according to their age and sex. 1848, that's a fascinating statement. Marx, I think, is one of the first people to see the significance of technology for the way people think about everything. And what he's essentially saying there is really, you know, traditionally, labor has involved muscle power. And therefore, there's been this clear distinction between men and women, because by and large, it's not entirely the case. Men are, are more muscly than women. One of my odder tasks at Grove City College is that I've been adopted by the Women's Rugby Club as their faculty patron and sponsor. And they made me read this announcement last semester. We were trying to drum up some support for women's rugby. And I said, would any women uh, or small men who could pass for women turn up for training this week? Uh, making the point, of course, there's a physical distinction. But in the world of technology, that becomes less significant. It's not that Marx here is anticipating the transgender moment, but he's pointing to the way social conditions are changing that will ultimately make it plausible. Technology allows us to overcome the biological differences that have typically been the basis for the social distinction between men and women. This is picked up in the 20th century, I think most famously by Simone de Beauvoir, the, the long-term lover and partner of Jean-Paul Sartre. And I think, sadly, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of de Beauvoir's thinking, but she was clearly, I think, far more brilliant than her boyfriend, I would have to say. 
this is what she says in the opening lines of part two of her major work of feminist theory, The Second Sex. One is not born, but rather becomes woman. No biological, psychic, or economic destiny defines the figure that the human female takes on in society. It is civilization as a whole that elaborates this intermediary product between the male and the eunuch that is called feminine. And she elaborates that in a 1976 interview. She says this, as technology expands, technology being the power of the brain and not of the brawn, the male rationale that women are the weaker sex and hence must play a secondary role can no longer be logically maintained. So again, when we're thinking about identity and we, you know, we want to jump straight to the difference between the genders, we need to think about the impact of technology on how we think about that difference. It becomes more and more plausible to eliminate that difference the more and more advanced technology becomes, both in the workplace and in the hospital. Immigration. We live in a world of uh, dramatic uh, population movements. Think of what that does for identity. When geography no longer defines us in quite the way it did. It's odd, I think, being an immigrant, I've been in the States now for coming up 18 years. Uh, it is strange going back home because you go, I go back to England and I say the skyline of London has changed. London has moved on. Britain has moved on in the 18 years that I've been away such that I no longer belong there. And yet I'll never quite belong here. Moved out here in my mid-30s, and you've done a lot of your living in terms of forming yourself as a person by your mid-30s. As an immigrant, you end up sort of trapped in a kind of no-man's land. See another immigrant nodding on the front row. It's weird. It shapes how you think about yourself. Think about the way contemporary politics is set up. Contemporary politics seems to me to be predicated not so much on the idea of setting forth an historical narrative that gives us an identity. Modern politics is predicated on destabilizing all identities, it seems to me. Very, very interesting the way that uh, civil rights is, is playing out at the moment. Uh, I got the students to reflect on this a few weeks ago in class. If you look at uh, the, the civil rights of the 1950s, if you look at the ruling of Brown versus the Board of Education, for example, the Supreme Court ruling on school integration, which is a good ruling. Yeah, it's, it's nicely written and, and well-reasoned, I think. But what's interesting of the civil rights of the 50s and 60s is this. It's predicated on the idea of human nature, that we all possess the same nature and therefore should be given equal dignity and recognition within society. What's interesting about civil rights today, whether we're talking sexual civil rights or racial civil rights, is that they're predicated on almost the exact opposite. It's predicated now on the idea that everybody's different and all of those differences need to be recognized. The idea of human nature has been destabilized. Human nature no longer has any political purchase. It's the distinctive constructions of each community 
that are to be recognized. The politics of the contemporary world have been predicated, I think, on the idea that human nature, if it still exists, is of no real political significance. What is significant are the individual communities in which people find themselves. And then finally, on the sort of the, the analytical side, I would say we've reached a point where the body has little or no authority. If we paint the history of the last two or three hundred years as a slow but sure erosion of the idea of external authority as shaping and defining identity, the final move, I think, is the authority of the body that is now being eliminated. Again, intimately connected to technology, but also connected to that psychological understanding of identity that I talked about last night. We are whoever we think we are. Again, go back to that statement that, that I started with yesterday that I find so intriguing. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. There's a wealth of philosophical assumptions behind that in order for it to be plausible in society. And it can only be plausible in a certain kind of society where technology plays a particular role, where identity has been detached from any kind of external authority, and where psychology dominates the way we think about ourselves. Here's a statement written by the, the radical uh, feminist thinker, Shulamith Firestone. She wrote this in 1970. Uh, I, I like Firestone's work, not because I like the content, but because she is utterly consistent with her assumptions. It's from her famous work, The Dialectics of Sex. Just as the end goal, she says, of socialist revolution was not only the elimination of the economic class privilege, but of the economic class distinction itself, so the end goal of feminist revolution must be, unlike that of the first feminist movement, which was basically women's voting rights. By the way, did you know that women didn't get the right to vote in Switzerland until 1971? Uh, that's quite recent, really. And uh, there was one canton that didn't allow women to vote uh, in local elections until the 1990s. Uh, Switzerland always seems to have been such an advanced, civilized country, but that's quite a stunning fact. Anyway, that's irrelevant. It may come up in a pub quiz or something for you at some point. Uh, unlike that of the first feminist movement, not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself. Genital differences, genital differences between human beings would no longer matter culturally. A reversion to an unobstructed pansexuality, Freud's polymorphous perversity, would probably supersede hetero, homo, bisexuality. This is 1970, and she's hitting out at the binary distinctions in sexuality, which interestingly enough, by the way, is, is what makes the LGBTQ alliance interesting, uh, because at least uh, the LGB part of that uh, acronym require a basic binary approach to sexuality. Uh, the T and the Q are based upon philosophically very different premises. It's very much a marriage of convenience in the political realm, which of course is starting to disintegrate you now, trouble surrounding Martina Navratilova, etc. recently. The reproduction of the species by one sex for the benefit of both would be replaced by at least the option of artificial reproduction 
Children would be born to both sexes, equally or independently of either, however one chooses to look at it. The dependence of the child on the mother and vice versa would give way to a greatly shortened dependence on a small group of others in general, and any remaining inferiority to adults in physical strength would be compensated for culturally. The division of labor would be ended by the elimination of labor altogether through cybernetics. The tyranny of the biological family would finally be broken. She wrote that in 1970. It must have sounded mad in 1970. Complete madness. That's a very accurate account of, of what we are on the eve of at the moment, I think. Much of what she's predicted has come true. There's just a little way to go. Firestone, I think, saw it with remarkable clarity. And when you put that together, put all that I've said today, this, this flux, when you put that together with the psychological identity that I talked about in part one, I think you have a lethal cocktail. Why do you have a lethal cocktail for this reason? We all want to belong. We all want an identity. And yet the terms of that are now up for grabs. They're matters of our choice, which I think make us vulnerable to the most powerful voices in an arena of flux. And I would say ISIS being the most obnoxious example of that. Why are these young men, often from relatively privileged homes, attracted to ISIS? Because they want to belong. Merely buying stuff and playing video games doesn't give you that sense of belonging. It doesn't get you recognized in the way we all crave. We live in a Western world where consumerism and technology have so attenuated traditional forms of belonging that we're looking now for alternatives to them. Why is it? Well, we all knew this would happen, but as soon as... Uh, uh, the transgender moment happened, and being transgender, uh, and I don't mean this in any demeaning way to, to any transgender person, but as soon as uh, the transgender thing became trendy, why did it take off? Is it that high schools have typically had a percentage of transgender individuals over the years who've just had to hide their proclivities? Or is it that the transgender moment provides young people, a lot of young people, with a means of belonging to something. And that's not to say that there aren't people out there who genuinely struggle. But I don't think as many struggle as are now coming forward. It's a way of belonging. And the LGBTQ community offers a powerful sense of belonging and stability. I think the church response has to be twofold on this. I think the church response has to be both doctrinal and practical. It has to be involved both teaching and action. What do we have to focus on in our teaching? Well, I think as, as identity has become a dominant motif in an era where our identities are not given to us, but we have to find them for ourselves, then identity needs to return to the center of Christian preaching. Just at the church where uh, my wife's a member and, and I attend, it's a bit of 
Presbyterian weirdness. I'm a member of Presbytery, not the local church where I attend. Been preaching some sermons on, on the book of Jude. And Jude, of course, is uh, we're almost certainly the physical brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that's not how he describes himself in the introduction to his book. He describes himself in very blunt and today kind of offensive, politically incorrect language, I suppose. He describes himself as a slave of Christ. And he's making the point there that whatever his earthly identity is, the thing that overrides everything is his relationship to Christ. And I think that's something that needs to be accented in our preaching. If we live in a world where identity is the big question, then Christian identity has to come to the fore. And it's what worries me about some of the, the language being used in the social justice uh, issues uh, in the church today, that I fear that an emphasis upon difference, humanly constructed differences, is coming to override fundamental common identity. That's not to say that some of those differences are not significant. And it's not to say that there aren't serious problems that need to be addressed relative to the way some of those differences play out in society and the way the church has at times been complicit in that. But it is to say that those are minor things compared to the overriding, overriding common identity we have in Christ. Secondly, I think one could make a case for saying that identity also connects very closely to the, notice of, uh, the, the notion of teleology. What is teleology? Well, it's the purpose. Go back to that, uh, that Reefian uh, taxonomy I, I did yesterday. Uh, what is the, the telos? What is the teleology of political man? To live in the polis, to live in the public square, to be engaged in his or her community. What's the telos of religious man in the Middle Ages? To be involved in the public activities of the church. The telos of economic man is to be involved in the economic activity of the society in which he or she finds themselves. The purpose of psychological man? To find a state of psychological happiness. And if that involves behaving in this way or doing that, then so be it. We need to counter that. The church, and I think maybe Protestantism can be a little vulnerable on this because Protestantism, its focus on individual salvation, which is a good and proper biblical one, must not lose the fact, side of the fact that our individual salvation makes us part of a community with an outward directed purpose to love God and love our fellow men and women as ourselves. So practical application in a corporate sense needs to be strong. And I think certainly in this kind of reformed churches that, that I've been involved in, our weaknesses, we often tend to, to preach very strongly on what Christ has done and not press home the obligations that that then places on us as a community. Thirdly, I think we need to understand the importance of the body as integral to who we are. Again, I think Protestantism may actually be a little weak on this compared to Catholicism. Uh, just at a very simple level, you know, to get grace in Catholicism, you've got to go to church and take mass. The body's got to be there. We believe you get grace by grasping the word by faith. 
Well, you can download that off the internet in the privacy of your own room, can't you? Well, not really. I don't think that when you look at what the New Testament teaches about the body of Christ, that's a legitimate attitude to take, but it's a potential one. Our emphasis upon the word can tend towards isolated individual Christianity. We need to understand that our bodies are not appendages to us, but they are who we are. 1 Corinthians 6, very important passage, I think, where it's very clear there that the, the man who sins sexually, it's a peculiar heinous sin. All sin is damning before God, yes. But the man who sins sexually sins against his own body. He sins against his relationship to Christ. I would also say he sins against who he actually is. Our bodies are part of who we are. There's a strong tendency in Christian circles to think of ourselves as souls. No, we're a combination of body and soul. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval thinker, is very clear on this. He has this rather odd idea which makes perfect sense when you think about it. He says, when you die and your soul goes to heaven, it isn't actually you. It's only part of you. The fullness of eternal life only comes when you are reunited with your body because your soul is not you. It's just part of you. You are body and soul. And I would commend, it's, it's not an easy book to read, but it's kind of ironic perhaps in these circles. I would commend John Paul II's book, The Theology of the Body, as an extremely important Christian reflection on the importance of our physical being for who we are. Wish I could recommend a Protestant on it, but I've, I have this uh, habit of, I always try to recommend the best book I know on a subject rather than the second best book on a subject just because it was written by a friend of mine. Uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body. And there is another, there's a book called Theology of the Body for Beginners. I can't remember the author, which is a nice summary of that book. You haven't got time to read a thousand pages of John Paul II. I sympathize. You can get a kind of 150 page summary. Action. That's the teaching. Identity, purpose, body, action, community. If identities are community constructs, then we need to be in the right community. Paul, I think, is saying something more profound than we realize when he says in Romans, bad company corrupts morals. He doesn't just mean if you hang around with the wrong person, you might end up saying or doing the wrong thing. I think he's saying that you hang around the wrong company, you become the wrong person. Augustine, the great 4th, 5th century uh, uh, theologian, bishop of, of, of Hippo in North Africa. Uh, in his confessions, he describes stealing some pears one evening with a bunch of pals. And there are a lot of things you could say about this passage. It's a party of particularly literary and theological brilliance. But one of the points he makes in it is he wouldn't have done it if he'd been on his own. He did it, he said, because he wanted to laugh. And typically, we only laugh with other people. I'm one of those annoying people who can laugh by themselves. Uh, some years ago, when I was reading Terry Eagleton's autobiography, uh, The Gatekeeper, uh, at night when we were going to bed, uh, I would read it and I would burst out laughing and my wife would be furious because, of course, there's nothing more annoying than being in a room where some guy's laughing and getting a joke and you have no access to it. But 
Augustine says, I did it because I, I, I wanted to laugh. And laugh is a corporate thing. I had to be part of a pack when I did it. Bad company corrupts morals. Who we are in our network of social relations and what priority those relations have is determinative of who we actually are. So the church needs to be a community. It can't just be a place where people go and hear some guy preach on a Sunday, sing a few songs. I have to comment on the drum kit, Todd. Not very Presbyterian, but I'll let it pass. Uh, it can't just be the place where we go to, to hear the word preach, sing a few songs and go home. It's got to be a community. You know, this may sound like a very, very contradictory thing to say, but maybe there's something we can learn from the LGBT community, and that's how they care for each other and support each other. It's very interesting. They've turned the world upside down. Uh, how? They were a small minority with very tight-knit communities. First century, second century Rome. The church did not turn the Roman Empire upside down by staging a coup and getting a Christian Caesar in there. Caesar became Christian when it was convenient for him to do so because so many of his subjects were Christians and it was an easier way to stabilize the empire than pursuing paganism. And how did you end up with more Christians than pagans? Tight-knit communities that cared for each other and cared for outsiders. That's how the church transformed the Roman Empire. Ethics in the Bible is rooted in God, but manifested in community. It's the basic text in the Old Testament on ethics. I am the Lord your God, who cares for the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner. Therefore, you should care for the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner. The church is meant to reflect the values, the ethics of God himself. And they're revealed to us in a profoundly community-oriented direction. So in short then, if I were to summarize, what's the answer? It sounds rather trite after two lectures. But we need to counter the plasticity of personhood and the liquidity, the flux of the world by stable, doctrinally formed and regulated communities, churches. Thank you very much. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.